Hi, just before we start the show, just wanted to let you know that this episode was recorded in a very large marine hangar. There's a bit of echo and lots of working noises going on in the background. We hope this doesn't spoil your listening experience. Welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. So one of the things I often get asked is, what's the pressure on the inside of the skirt? Yeah. Uh, people think it's a bit like a car tyre. We're, we're nowhere near that. We're, we're less than one PSI. Wow. Despite the craft weighing getting on for 40 tonnes, um, the whole thing could pass over an egg on the beach and not break it. Wow. Extended, your aerospace radio station. Hello there, I'm Peter Johnson and welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. As we continue our focus on features across aerospace, none other than the hovercraft brings up the challenge of does it fit in aerospace. To help me answer that question, I'm at Griffin Hoverwork near Southampton in the UK and I'm joined by Ben Avery. Ben's the chief pilot at Griffin Hoverwork and a trustee and head of operations at the Hovercraft Museum. Ben, welcome to Extended. Very nice to be here, thank you. Uh, Great to have you, Ben. Um, So, um, what is the Hovercraft and how does it differentiate from aviation and marine? It sort of sits in the middle. It absolutely sits right in the middle. And if we go right back through the history of the hovercraft, back to where it was first conceived, uh, and we go back to the original experiments, um, that takes us back to John Thornycroft back in the 1800s. And he was trying to make boats go faster. And his idea was to try and use air lubrication. And right. to pump air underneath a conventional ship's hull. Didn't know that. Uh, so, uh, and that's and that's where the the first concepts for getting a a, a vessel to hover yeah. came from. Um, he made scale models and tested it, and in theory it, it worked, but the technology at the time just prevented it going yeah. any further. Uh, and then in the 1930s, uh, a Russian inventor, Mr. Levkov, uh, made a hovering craft. Uh, which was quite successful, but for whatever reason, uh, it never got developed any further. And it wasn't until um, Christopher Cockrell came along in the 1950s, who uh, had worked for Marconi for many years. He actually helped to, he had hundreds of patents to his name, a prolific inventor. Yeah. Uh, helped to develop radar during World War II, amongst other things. And it was his experiences during World War II, seeing the D Day landings, thinking, how could I get troops ashore? You know, in, you know yeah. better and, and recover them quicker and how do I and then it led on to ideas how do I make a boat more efficient and uh, that's where his experiment started uh, in the 1950s so explain to us how does a hovercraft work so a hovercraft works by feeding air underneath um, a hull of a vessel yeah. and then creating a curtain around that bubble of air and it yeah. creates a, a relatively high pressure. It's 
it's not high pressure, but it is relatively yeah. high pressure, and it creates yeah. a low pressure on the outside of the craft, and that's what allows it to hover. Right. Okay. So it pushes it up on that sort of balloon. That's right. Uh, yeah. Belt, and we we we'll talk about skirts and all sorts of things like that. And how about moving the craft forward? So the craft is traditionally moved along by a, a conventional air screw. Yeah. So you have a propeller on the back. Um, we've got specifically designed hovercraft propellers, but they right. are made by aircraft manufacturers. Yeah, okay. Now, just to explain to our listeners, we are in a working environment, so there's a lot of background noise going on. Hopefully, it's not going to um, spoil your listen, but it is a, a, an operating environment because we are at uh, Griffin, of course. Um, so, Ben, where did the first hovercrafts appear? What, what happened? I mean, my memories being a youngster was the airfix model or the big cross-channel um, hovercrafts, but certainly that wasn't the first appearance of hovercraft service. So, uh, for again, we, we talked about Christopher Cockrell, and he yeah. came up with his, his idea for a, for a hovering craft. He approached um, Ministry of Technology to say, Look, what do I do with this? And he went around the various different industries. He went yeah. to Marine. Marine said, oh, that, that's not a boat, that's an aircraft. He went to <laughs> an aircraft manufacturer. They said, oh, that, that's, not a, that's not a plane, it's a ship. Yeah. Uh, and then he went to um, uh, other places, and they just yeah. weren't interested. Uh, but he went, and eventually he got the Ministry of Technology interested in the idea and the concept. They classified it, uh, and then they approached Saunders Row, who were a well-known right. flying boat manufacturer at the time, to develop... Cockrell's idea from the from the first craft right. SRM one. So that's where the SRN comes from. That's I wonder, right. wondered about that. So um, and that numbering system went through for a, for a long time. Um, and uh, I, I mentioned earlier before we started recording, I came across a hovercraft um, in the mid 70s on an airfield in military in navy service, um, and the person operating that was called a pilot. Um, I think it might have been an SRN4, SRN5, I'm not quite sure. It was Royal Navy, but it was fabulous fun. Um, but it really got my mind thinking, just before we carry on with the history, you're the chief pilot here at Griffin Hoverwork. Can you just tell us a little bit about um, how your career has evolved and, and what a pilot for a hovercraft actually does? So, uh, so my background, I, I started off as somebody... Who well, I lived in Leon Soden yeah. uh, as a, a child, and growing up, we lived quite close to where the Hovercraft Museum is. Yeah. And I, I remember in the 90s the, the hover shows and, and the end of the Navy days where, the, uh, where they used to yeah. do displays and things down there as well. Uh, and around 2000, I joined the Hovercraft Museum as a member just as the ex cross channel craft were retired and they were bought round right. to be stored at the museum okay and so i was about 11 years old i think when i started volunteering at the museum wow okay wow that's a young age yeah to so get involved <laughs> i used to go down there and annoy everybody on weekends but <laughs> hopefully i was sort of vaguely useful cleaning and tidying yeah. up but it really really got my imagination going and uh, it allowed me to uh, i did there was another company based out of the museum called hover hire and they they chartered like hovercraft okay. for event days and things and in the summer holidays when i was a bit older i used to go down and fuel the craft up and repair fingers yeah and uh, occasionally at the end of the day they'd let me take one of the craft for a drive i thought oh, this, right. this would be a great job yeah <laughs> so when it came time to uh, to leave school i approached 
Griffin Hovercraft is the company he was then. Yeah. And the managing director, John Gifford. And I uh, phoned up and said, oh, have you got any jobs for an apprentice? I want to be a marine engineer. Yeah. And uh, he said, no, no, not, not, don't need any of those. So <laughs> I went around and tried to get a, an apprenticeship in a few other places. And at the time, they weren't very popular. And I, I called him back in the end and said, look, have you got an apprenticeship as anything? I'll come in and do anything. He said, well, we'll take you on. So I started yeah. off as a welder fabricator, did yeah. my time as that. But the, the size of the company at the time, with only 25 people in you, uh, particularly as an apprentice, you did a bit of everything. Yeah, you did a bit sure. of mechanical, pulling wires, doing a bit of fiberglassing. Uh, working in the skirt shops, and it was a it was a good apprenticeship in hovercraft, and it really got me into it. Right. So, how did you then transist from what was the making, the fixing, the welding, to sitting in the pilot seat? How did, how, how does that happen? How does one go from <laughs> a very manual operational role to what could be described as a sort of flagship role of the uh, of the organisation? I think you could probably say it was pure bloody-mindedness. I, I was determined to do it. <laughs> I was absolutely determined to somehow yeah. become a, a hovercraft pilot. And I, I was very lucky at the time. Um, I used to go occasionally. I'd always be a volunteer to go out on the sea trials. Yeah. And that was my desire to move from welding fabrication into mechanical because if you're an engineer, you've got to go and yeah. do the sea trials with the pilots. Right. And depending on who was flying the craft, occasionally you'd be allowed a little drive and... I said, I really want to do this. So I got some basic qualifications around 2011, which allowed me to drive the smaller craft. Um, and it was around that time that the, the business was bought out and we were merged with uh, another manufacturer on the Isle of Wight, which was Hoverwork, okay. which was Hover Travel's engineering company. Okay. And the three businesses were bought up by uh, Bland Group, who had always had a stake in the businesses anyway, yeah. uh, but they became the majority okay. uh, shareholders. And... Um, Around the time the two companies were merged and became Griffin Hoverwork, um, I moved from the main production team into a, a team called Special Projects, and we did all the one-off builds and okay. got yeah. to go overseas yeah. and do warranty work and, and bits and pieces and, and go out and meet the customers. Um, and I was able to get a bit more qualified again. Uh, but uh, and I stayed with the company full-time up until about 2015, uh, and we, we got to a point, and it's been forever the case in the marine industry let alone the hovercraft industry yeah. you have peaks and troughs sure and they come through and we went into a bit of a quiet period yeah and i thought it was a good time to go off and get a bit of external experience but I, i've always kept right a contract with griffin and they yeah. called us back in to do bits and pieces um but i, I went to go uh, drive high speed ferries uh, and then okay. work for the local harbour master on we've the missed orders. something out here ben there's something about qualifying to do all this stuff um, what sort of qualifications do you need to be a hovercraft pilot or uh, a ferry master? So, um, well, that was that was the desire to go off and do something a bit more. So I yeah. had some basic qualifications, which was called the boat, boat master's license issued yeah. by the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency, but that didn't allow me to go and work for hover travel, for example, right. which require a higher standard of ticket. Yeah, uh, and to do that. I had to go and do a cadetship in the Merchant Navy. Right. So, and it was while I was working at the Harbour Master's office in Southampton, and the Harbour Master said, well, "What are you doing here? Go off and do your your tickets, basically." Yeah. So, if it all goes wrong, we'll take you back. So, I, I went off and did a Merchant Navy cadetship um, when I was 29. So, it's quite old to turn sure. up as a cadet. Yeah. Uh, and I was a cadet with P and O. Um, worked on 
North Sea ferries for a while, then moved on to bulk carriers going around the UK and Europe. Yeah. And that got my maritime experience yeah. up together. And then I was able to apply for a, a Master 500 certificate of competency. Right. Um, which is another Is that what you need to pilot the hovercraft? So if you're going to do uh, passenger work in the UK, that's, yeah. your, that's your basic minimum. Okay. And do you now need to be revalidated every year or is there a cyclical process where you have to reset or anything like that so for my for my main coc i don't have to yeah. do a revalidation apart from my short courses which yeah. is um, which everybody has to do for every five years for the specifically for driving the hovercraft just like an aircraft you have a type rating yeah so okay. that that's the bit specific to hovercraft yeah and it is um put into legislation through the high-speed craft code right um and it again it's one of those little quirks of the hovercraft is that's something which goes right back to the beginning of hovercraft when it was governed by the Civil Aviation Authority. Yeah, which so, it no longer is. Which it no longer is. But So the Hovercraft Act 1968 and the Hovercraft General Order 1972, all the way through the documents, refer to the Civil Aviation Authority. Yeah. It's the reason UK hovercraft have a golf hotel number. Yeah. It's the reason we're still called pilots. Uh, it's the reason we have a type rating. Yeah. So, yeah. It, And it's something which has been carried over from civil aviation into maritime and it's now under the high speed craft code yeah i think for again from memory those um royal navy hovercraft had aviation prefixes yeah because i likely. was a plane spotter so yeah. i was like i'm having that <laughs> <laughs> so let's come back then to um talk a little bit about the the history again um we talked about cockerel and the, the development and we talked about the srn series can you just briefly talk us through that because they're i think the most familiar um things and the one thing that that gets me is this it was a british development i don't see apart from exported British hovercraft, many other hovercraft around the world or during my life. Is that true? Has it stayed pretty much a British product? So just talking quickly about the Saunders Row yeah. side of it and, and the, where it all started from. And I think because they went to Saunders mm. Row, who were an, um, a seaplane manufacturer, yeah. um, that is where such a lot of influence for civil aviation came through. If you looked at the, the cockpit of a, an SRM4 yeah. or an SRM5, for example, there, it would feel quite familiar to somebody who had flown Lancasters in the war. Yeah. The, the foot pedals were came out of the Princess flying boats. All the controls and dials and everything yeah. were all very, very familiar. Um, over the years, we've obviously moved into a more marine manufacturing um, and over the years, we've become a bit more a bit more clever about who we sell hovercraft to. Right. Okay. Back in the 60s and 70s, the idea was that hovercraft were going to come in and replace boats and all sorts of manners yeah. of transport. Yeah. And I think that's why back in the early days, you saw hovercraft everywhere. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's why hovercraft failed in the early days is because they were put into applications they just weren't suitable for. Right. Uh, and they didn't succeed. And the, the technology using gas turbines was quite difficult to look after at the time and yeah. very expensive and, and all the rest of it. Where we've moved into a more marine-based technology uh, with more simple construction techniques, simple engine yeah. systems yeah. and transmissions. It's become a lot more accessible. And again, we sell hovercraft to people who need a hovercraft. If you can do the job with a boat, use a boat because yeah. it's going to be it's going to be simpler for you. Right. Uh, and that's why you don't really see hovercraft very much in the UK. Yeah. Because you've got lovely infrastructure. You've got dredge ports and facilities. Yeah. And 
we sell hovercraft to places which do not have the infrastructure and that's why you don't see very many of them around. I, I think at the moment there's probably about 180 Griffin hovercraft operating around the world. Wow. Um, there's probably close to 500 to 1,000 hovercraft operating right. around the world with all manner of different organisations and, yeah. uh, and operations and personal hovercraft used anywhere from leisure up to military, coast guard, rescue, yeah. uh, and passenger services. Well, let's talk about some of those uses through through the history of time, because there's been an evolution of hovercraft, and they've grown bigger and bigger, and we got to the, was it the Princess? Yeah, yeah the princess, princess, yeah, yeah, so the uh, Mad Bang class hovercraft, yeah. yeah. The massive um, craft. What sort of size? What what something like that? 100 tonnes, something like that? Yeah, the, uh, the Mount Batten class craft, which was was going Dover to Calais with yeah. hover speed, and that's probably the, the most familiar craft to, to people. They carried, um, I think it was about 80,000 cars and, and yeah. over millions of passengers throughout their lives. Yeah. Um, those were 54 metres, 300 tonne, using four Proteus gas turbine engines to, to do, wow. do the crossing. Right. Um, will we see hovercraft of that size in commercial use again? I'm not sure. I, I don't think so. Yeah. I think the the needs for how the world operates, you no longer need to be in Paris in half an hour anymore. Sure. You can do everything over teams. And, and yeah, sure. I suspect that's the same reason we don't see Concorde in the sky. Yeah. Or we haven't needed to for a little while. Yeah, okay. Um, the okay. world has changed in how we need to get to places. But that being said, I think there's definitely, and, and we're seeing it now in the workshop, we are getting more inquiries for smaller um, domestic craft yeah, to yeah. link communities which are otherwise you'd have to build quite an expensive infrastructure to support a, right. a, a vessel of that size now they, they, I've, I've heard some stories of um, uh, hovercraft being used in the Middle East for similar reasons I suppose desert sea marsh that sort of thing um, quite interesting they were in Iran they were in Iraq uh, we must have just been selling to everyone back in back in the good day. Also, up in the colder climes as well, they've proved to be really, really useful. Again, that transition from hard surface to snow, ice, water, and that mix. Does the hovercraft just lap it up? Is it that's its ability? Is that its specialism to just go over it? I think that's one of the things that's always fascinated me and. Uh, about hovercraft in general is that the same hovercraft we build that will go and operate on the river amazon yeah we will change the air conditioning unit for a heater and it will go and happily operate up in the arctic circle yeah without any modifications well let's talk about um griffin a little bit then because we're here today thanks for for for, for hosting us um uh what sort of craft are you now supplying? Where are they going around the world? We're going to look in a minute at um, some some craft that are going to go to Japan. Um, tell us a bit about the business and 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 who it's selling to and and that sort of thing. So we do have a, a global market, and we, we've got um, hovercraft in most countries with a coastline, yeah. which has a bit of marsh on it somewhere, or uh, the Baltic regions uh, use hovercraft quite extensively. South America, uh, India. We've got hovercraft, as you say, going out to Japan. We've got yeah. hovercraft operating in New Zealand. Right. All okay. built here in the UK. Okay. Um, and um, are some of those in military service, civil service, you know, I saw back in the day 
was very much a military thing to me, other than the cross-channel stuff. Um, are they still in military service today? Oh, most definitely. In fact, one of the largest fleets in the world is operated by the US Navy. Right. And they've, okay. they've got 100 um, hovercraft, LCACs, landing craft air cushion, uh, and they've just re- in the process of replacing their fleet, which are over 25 years old now, and they're right. replacing it. Um, with so the next how, generation. How does that work from what was a British design? Have we lost that sort of expertise to sell hundreds of hovercraft to America, or is it the way the military procure? How does that work? I, I think specifically for America, it's it's how American procurement works. Yeah, they've got um, for marine vessels, you've got the Jones Act, which prevents us from being able to right. build a craft in the UK and then export it to yeah. America. Um, that's not to say we haven't been able to assist with. Right, okay. Um, we do a lot of consultancy work for a, a, quite a number of different organisations. That's one of our main streams of income. So okay. the manufacturing facility yeah. is one stream of income. Yeah. Uh, another stream of income will be spares and support services. And then another stream of income for us, which brings in a fair bit of money, is consultancy. Right, okay. So tell us about some of the performance um capabilities of some of the hovercraft that the the griffin are developing at the moment what the sorts of things they can do speed performance you know um, capacity so let's take for example the 12,000 TD which is currently operating with hover travel right that takes uh, 78 passengers uh, plus a wheelchair uh, and uh, up to four crew um, and 500 kilos of luggage right that will go up uh, to a service speed of 45 knots Right. Uh, it can cope with one wow. and a half meters significant wave height and wind speeds um, 35 gusting 40 knots. Right. Okay. Um, and what's the weight of something like that? What's it powered by? So uh, the the all up weight of the craft is probably a, is in the region of about 45 tons. Yeah. Um, and that's powered by the twin MAN thousand horsepower V12 diesel right, engines. Right. Okay. And. We talked about your qualifications, similar qualifications for the pilot, the master pilot there? That's right. So the the, uh, the pilots operating on that particular route, they'll have a, a master 500 minimum qualification yeah. Um, with a, a background in Merchant Navy. I can ask you some really naive questions now. Um, what happens if a hovercraft breaks down in... In transit, in operation, how does that how does that work? Does it sink, float? Um, how does that work? <laughs> so, as a, a question we get asked quite a lot, surprisingly. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> what what happens? There, can you pop the skirt? Is it like a balloon? Is it's is it actually a very rugged piece of material that hangs around the outside? You could put a, quite an extensive piece of damage, and the craft yeah. will still hover. Um, if the engines fail. The craft will float like a boat. It will sit there quite happily, indefinitely, just floating. Okay. Um, So um, on that basis, one of the things that uh, I've heard in the past, again, I don't know if it's still in use, is the use of the hovercraft for emergency services, rescue services. um, And in this country, of course, we've got the uh, RLNI. Um, Do they use it? Is there any use in that around the world? Yeah, so the, the RNI have um, hovercraft in their fleet, which were made by Griffin Hoverwork. Right. Um, they're based with four lifeboat stations, and then they've got a, a training and a standby craft down at pool as well. Right. And they are used very extensively. Uh, they're used right through the year, going out to shouts. What what for, Ben? Um, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think, if I'm in a boat that's capsized, can that come up to me 
and safely recover me. Is that is it that sort of rescue, traditional, or is it something specialised? I'm sure they can come up and do an alongside yeah. rescue. I couldn't see that being a problem, but their main stay is uh, mud rescue. So people getting trapped right. by the tide or getting okay. stuck in, in yeah. places where you couldn't get okay, any yeah, other understood. vessel to, or otherwise you're having to get a rescue helicopter in, which yeah. becomes a bit expensive. Yeah, okay, okay. Now... Um, that's what we're doing now. Is these crafts are going all over the world. Um, how do they get um, moved around the world? They're big, heavy machines. They're not going to operate from... Well, I don't know, do they? Do they operate from here? Do you send something to Scandinavia? Will it go under its own power? How does that sort of work? So we've done a, done a little bit of a mix. Um, smaller craft of a certain size. So our smallest craft, the 380TD, that will go into a 20-foot container. Oh, okay. Um, the 2000 TD, uh, we can split that down into the hull and the side decks and the duct, and that will go into two 40-foot containers and be transported. Okay. When we get anything bigger than that, then it starts to go on as deck cargo on ships. Right. But we have taken craft under their own power as far as Belgium. Okay. Uh, and, sorry. Um, and they, they will do those journey and there's a 300 mile journey no problem. Right. Okay. So what would the, you know we talked about um, performance? What is the range? Um, uh, of something uh, more traditional that we'd see on, on something like the, the, the Solent. So for, for something which is operating on the Solent, 12,000 TD, you could get four hours range at full power. So right, and that's okay. 45 knots. So is it, you could, Where so, would that take me to, Ben? Oh, I think that gives you about... Would, would two, that take me to France, Belgium, somewhere like oh, that? Oh, you easily get to France on that. Yeah, yeah. okay, right, interesting, interesting. So um, let's talk about the future. Um, obviously... Uh, Hovercrafts, and I was going to use the term have survived the changes in this world through the last 40, 50 years and are still here and are still operating. What's the future looking like for Hovercraft and more importantly for Griffin? The future's looking good. Uh, we've got a lot of interest. We always have interest in Hovercraft, but particularly as we're coming on with um, new projects, it's, it gets people interested in hovercraft again and, and seeing new applications. Yeah. The future for us, and we've already built a hybrid uh, diesel-electric hovercraft, the 995ED, okay. which is in service in several places around the world. Okay, I didn't know that. So, well. that's, um, so that's been something we developed about five years ago. Yeah. Uh, our next step is to look at something fully electric. Yeah. Technology is moving so quickly now. Something we thought might not be available for 10 years' time yeah. is actually looking a lot more accessible uh, we're also looking at hydrogen options for hovercraft as well so yeah hovercraft aren't going away they're, they're right, still, okay. still quite a bright future and um would that again would it be a traditional structure in terms of the, the hover and the skirt and the propeller driven or would there be any other sort of changes that you can see in the future to using those sorts of technologies so there's, there's always different things that the, the design team are looking at, and it's, uh, we've got quite a, a good design team here that yeah. like to explore different options. At the moment, we're um, the next step for us, as we say, is looking at something more uh, more green for operation, and we're constantly trying to get the hovercraft more efficient. Yeah, the, the yeah, lighter sure. materials you can use, uh, the more efficiency out of the power units, uh, mm -hmm. everything to. And what about the rest of the um, the structure of the, the the hovercraft? Is you know we were talking about earlier about carbon fiber use of carbon fiber. Any more environmentally friendly products down the line? Do you think? I mean, the the skirt is is it traditional rubber still? Yeah, so the, it depends on the size of the craft, but most of the fingers are made from natural rubber. 
the top size tend yeah. to be made from like a neoprene. Right. Um, okay. That's that's something we're always trying to develop to make those components last a bit longer. Yeah. So the future is looking good. It is. Yeah. And the future is looking good for uh, Griffin as well. Now you've got um, several craft out in the workshop being finished um it's a busy place it's great to see it's great to see a british business performing um well what 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 orders are coming into the workshop next what what can we what can we see coming through the system next after the japanese uh, craft go so i think the next ones we'll be looking at will be um for more search and rescue organizations we're looking at okay. a, a couple of those coming up uh, border force uh, and okay. patrol yeah, operations uh, out in Baltic regions are, are interested in hovercraft. Yeah, uh, and a lot of the people that we're getting interest from are returning customers, people that have operated hovercraft for a long time yeah. and are coming back to to get the next generation and to and because they have seen the benefit of using them. Yeah, and um, just to to wrap up then, do our military in the UK still use hovercraft? The military in the UK don't anymore. But, okay, um, we we still get um, we're still operating with a lot of uh, overseas military customers right um so let's go back to the museum tell us a bit about how people can find it um what they can see at the museum so the museum's located down in leon solent in hampshire on the south coast open every saturday from 10 till 4 yeah um loads of information on the website and on the facebook page it's a good place to get a lot of updates from uh, there's over 55 hovercraft on display okay. from small single seaters up to the giant SRM4, the Princess Anne. She's okay. located there as well. Right. Um, videos, films, displays, guided tours. It's it's, it's well worth it. Okay. And, it. and it's a real hands-on. You can really climb aboard and oh, get to good. experience it. Good. Okay. So I, I, I have seen it many moons ago. Um, how do you move that craft around because obviously it's no longer operational no no it hasn't operated for a, a long period of time um we have to be quite inventive with how we we move the larger exhibits around yeah um, some of them do have engines and we, we can put them on the hover but yeah when we get up to the srm4 we've actually got to look at um a way of moving that soon not very far it's got to move all of 30 meters but to achieve that is um yeah, watch this space. It's going okay. to be quite an interesting one. Yes. We'll, we'll watch out on the, on the Facebook page. And how about leisure hovercraft? Is there still an appetite for that? Again, I remember when I was younger, people racing around their gardens and ponds on very small craft. Yeah, absolutely. It's still quite a big leisure market. And there's also quite a big racing fraternity oh, okay. as well. So you've got the Hovercraft Club of Great Britain who organise um, race meetings throughout the UK at various times of the year. Please go have a look at their their page. They've they've got some. Again, when we talk about craft being developed, uh, the guys, the racing teams, are normally right up there with the latest materials and yeah. getting the absolute highest end performance out of the craft. And it is it's quite an exciting thing to go and watch as well. Bit bit like Formula One, isn't it? Oh yeah. You know, we used to you get all the technology um, lifts out of that. Did you know? that the RP-3 rocket projectile, used to great effect by Hawker Typhoons in the tank-busting ground attack role, was originally conceived as an air-to-air weapon to attack Luftwaffe bomber streams? Did you also know that in the 1950s, an indigenous light aircraft built in the Philippines was skinned with woven bamboo matting? If your answers to the above are yes, you're probably a regular reader of The Aviation Historian, 
the quarterly journal, print and digital, that explores the less well-trodden paths of flying history. If your answers are no, visit theaviationhistorian.com and see what you're missing. So Ben, we're down just on the main workshop floor. What can we see here? So at the moment what you can see in build are three new passenger hovercraft which will be going out to Japan, uh, starting a new passenger service as of uh, March, May next year. Right. Um, Which is quite exciting for us. That's the first time we've done a a new large passenger hovercraft um, for an operator for about 20 years. So a lot of our hovercraft are for commercial or paramilitary or coast guard and rescue rather than passenger. Yeah. And what type of hovercraft are these? So these are the Griffin Hoverwork 12000 TD. It's the one of the newer models that we've produced, currently in service with Hover Travel, going right to South Sea. The craft that you see in production here, they've had a few modifications and a few upgrades yeah. done to them. Um, they can carry 78 passengers plus two wheelchairs and 500 kilograms of uh, passenger baggage. Right. And what makes these different uh, uh, for their service abroad than they do here from the traditional ones we see going across the Solent? So these craft have been built to Japanese government regulations, so there's a few minor tweaks. Um, I think the main difference from what we might have seen traditionally operating, uh, going back six, seven years, the older craft that which used to operate, they were designed back in the 1980s. They used four main diesel engines to make the hovercraft run and could carry 90 passengers. The 12,000 TD is that next generation of hovercraft, um, was carrying 80 passengers only using two engines so that's the advancement in technology yeah okay okay now this is a really busy packed workshop um not quite sure of the size but it's ginormous what else is going on in here so also we've got a a smaller craft which is being built uh, for uh, the canadian uh, government at the moment which will be operating a a seasonal service uh, to link communities out in canada uh, and we've also got some other projects uh, in the background. We don't specifically do hovercraft, although we, we are a hovercraft manufacturer. We also do conventional boat refits and, and things oh, okay. like that as well. Oh, okay. So, so we're we're now under this the, this craft. It's so much bigger to me. Obviously, I'm not used to it, but it looks amazing. What's it sat on, and how's it going to be transported once it's complete? So at the moment, the craft that we can see here is the one that's closest to being finished out of the three craft in the workshop. Each craft's built 12 weeks behind the other. Um, this craft is due to actually launch and go to sea next week. One of the things we have to do before it launches we have, is that we have to weigh it. So at the moment, it's actually raised up on blocks about one and a half metres off the floor to make sure we've got all of the skirt lifted up out the way so we get a true weight. But in reality, this is probably about the hover height of the craft when it's yep. operational. Right, okay. And how will this be transported all the way to Japan? So while we're doing the UK sea trials, obviously the, the craft will operate under its own power. But to get in country, the craft will go piggyback on the ship. It will go as deck okay. cargo. Okay, right, okay. Now, will you be doing the sea trials? Yeah, that'll be uh, me. So on, yeah, hopefully Tuesday, we should be off to sea. And we have a, a set criteria of trials that we have to complete. Yeah. Uh, to prove not just to ourselves but also to the customer and to the people that will classify the craft in country yeah. that it will do what we've said it will do and it will do it within the design uh, right. parameters. Okay. 
And is it a bit like a, a new car, a new aeroplane when you get on? It's that fresh smell, that new that new smell. What's it like testing an air, uh, testing a hovercraft from um, from brand new? What are you looking for? So the testing a craft from brand new. It can be quite challenging because uh, obviously things are still bedding in, the systems are still being set to work. There's normally a few surprises along the way. That is the nature of commissioning a brand new vessel. It'd be the same as if it was a ship, an aircraft or or a new car. Um, It's a, a nice feeling to be able to put a craft through its paces during the trials. And we do push the craft right to its limit to prove that it will do what we've said it will do and to be able to demonstrate that to the customer right. and to reassure them that what they've paid quite a lot of money for is going yeah. to do what we've said it will do. Yeah. Um, what area do, do, do you do these trials on? Is there a set area out in the Solent that you use? Yeah, so we have a, a, a trials exemption certificate for operating a, a craft which will be um, used abroad uh, and that gives us an area which runs from the needles in the west of the Solent right down to the NAB Tower in the east Solent. Okay, so we've got a real opportunity here to see what a hovercraft looks like underneath. So we're just crawling underneath the skirt, and I hope you can still hear me. But can you just explain to me how the hovercraft operates? Because I've never been under a hovercraft here, and I never expected the hull to be flat. So that's right. Essentially what we're looking at is uh, the underside of... A, a barge yeah. shaped vessel and that's where a hovercraft breaks the traditional rules of marine architecture traditionally a, a destroyer is long and thin so it goes yeah. fast a, a barge is short and wide and it goes quite slowly yeah. a hovercraft is a quite wide square vessel or a rectangular vessel which will because you can lift it right out the water yeah. you lose all that friction and you've got a high speed work platform right okay and you can really see underneath you can really see underneath here that um, when the hovercraft is not using its power, it can settle as a barge, as it, as it, as it were. That's right, and it becomes a very stable work platform when it's in the water. It's, right. uh, um, the construction of the hull is that it's uh, essentially double-skinned. You've got a, a series of buoyancy tanks on the inside with a, a deck above that. Yeah. Um, if there was any damage to the underside of the craft, you'd be able to still quite happily remain afloat. Yeah. What an amazing and unique view. So we're now we're now at the uh, at the um, the back end of the the craft as she sits just on the slipway. What are we looking at here, Ben? So yeah, this is definitely the business end of the craft. We're we're staring up at two large propeller ducts. Yeah. Um, the propellers sit inside. They are a five-bladed variable pitch propeller built by MT Propeller in Germany quite familiar to a lot of yep. aircraft applications they uh, specifically are hovercraft propellers um, designed for for use on on these machines uh, they are producing the the thrust to make the craft go forwards they're connected to the uh, main engine via a carbon fiber lift shaft uh, sorry a prop shaft which is belt driven off the main engine uh, and also off the main engine is another belt which comes out and then drives the uh, carbon right. fiber lift fans as well okay and now traditionally, um, hovercraft, traditionally, uh, in the past they were made very much of aluminium, steel, heavy, sturdy stuff. What is this craft made of? So the main hull is still made of aluminium. Yep. Um, the underside is actually 4mm thick. Um, the side decks, again, aluminium. 
all the other mouldings are, are GRP, FRP yeah. composite and that materials. Saves weight. Saves weight, and it's still a nice, strong structure yeah. as well. The real business end of the hovercraft, of course, is a skirt, Ben. Um, it looks so much simpler than I thought it would be. Well, it, that's absolutely right. As you say, that everything that makes a hovercraft a hovercraft is the skirt. The original hovercraft didn't use them. They weren't terribly successful. Uh, the skirt on here gives us a cushion depth of about 1.2 metres, so we could safely pass over an obst- a solid obstacle that yeah. high. Um, it takes a lot of punishment from the waves that sort of bumpy ride you get is the feeling of the, the skirt soaking up all of those little lumps and bumps as we travel over at high speed it's made in two main sections we've got the, the top part which is what we call the loop and that goes all the way around the craft right. and that stays with the craft the majority of its life right the next part down are all these individual uh, components which are called ah, the segments right okay sometimes they're, they're called the fingers um, there's different types depending on where they are on the craft, but these are the bits which are conforming to all the little lumps and bumps as we go over, right, I see. and it makes a, a good seal. These have a, a life of about a thousand hours. Uh, so this is the perishable bit? This is the bit that's replaceable, this yeah. is the consumable part of the okay. craft. Right, understand. So one of the things I often get asked is, what's the pressure on the inside of the skirt? Yeah. Uh, people think it's a bit like a car tire we're, we're nowhere near that we're, we're less than one psi wow despite the craft weighing getting on for 40 tons um the whole thing could pass over an egg on the beach and not break it wow so we're, we're now standing just in front of one of the fans and to the entrance to the main cabin ben yeah so what we're looking at here is one of four lift fans um, these have been developed over the years these are now very efficient um, pieces of machinery uh, these four fans are not very big in diameter as you can see about 800 mil yeah. diameter and that's again lifting the whole craft that's what's making it a hovercraft okay so it's taking its air from this side that's right so it feeding draws, in draws air through it's spun around and pushed down into the skirt okay. below right and the the power that's used to make it hover again is not as much as some people might think. Very roughly, crudely, it's about one third of power to lift and two thirds to thrust. Right, okay. So it's a separate fan to the propellers that are pushing the craft forward. That's right, all driven off the same engine but with two okay. different belts operating it. Okay, and it's a single engine that drives this craft, is uh, it? It's twin engine twin. but it's, it's a power set per side and right. they, they are both separate from each other. Right, okay. We're inside the main cabin now. It looks very um, familiar uh, to those who have crossed either the Channel or the Solent on a hovercraft, um, but feels more like an aeroplane than a boat. Yeah, I, I think the particular customer this is being designed for is linking an airport to a city, right. and they want to give the airline experience all the way through. Right. Okay. And um, what else do we have here? This is the main cabin. Where do the crew uh, and where does the pilot operate? So, yeah, as you said, we're in the main cabin. What we're looking at here, this is the main entrance for the passengers. There's two bow ramps which uh, fold out from either side, so we don't have to have any ground equipment. Yep. We carry all our own uh, gangways and everything. Totally on. self-sufficient. Totally self-sufficient, turn up anywhere, which is great. Uh, they come through and the passengers come and sit in the main cabin and there's seating for 78 in here. Right. Uh, just either side, uh, in between either of the uh, main entrances, there's a, a space for luggage 
bicycles, suitcases. Right, okay. And then the ladder that we're looking at in the, uh, the forward end of the cabin leads up to the wheelhouse. We right. can go and take okay. a look up there in a moment. Okay. So just climbing up the ladder into what I would describe as the cockpit that you described as the as the wheelhouse the wheelhouse now there interestingly is the difference between I suppose aviation and marine and I think that's is it's interesting to note that over the years we have gone from being more aviation focused and we've become more marine yeah and, and I think that is purely in terms of who designs the craft and builds them and who the operators tend to be right okay okay but it feels very much like a modern um machine um uh, uh, all lcd screens um joystick driven um all the panels it looks a cross between an airliner and uh, I, w- I wouldn't say a ship, I'd say some sort of spacecraft. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, compared to a, a ship or a boat, this is actually quite a small space to be yeah, in. It is very it is, small. It's quite, um, it's quite intimate with the, the crew sat yeah. next to you. You can have a, a, quite a, a, a good experience as um, operating the craft up here, working as a team in terms yeah. of bridge team, rather than being spread out across the, the right. There are, there are two seats in here. Um, what's the second seat? Obviously, you're sat in the pilot seat at the moment yeah i'm sat there and the the other seats for the navigator so is does the navigator have any other role so the navigator's main job is to look at the radar screen and at the chart plotter as well they're also acting as a lookout um not just by looking out the window but also keeping an ear out on the radio as well just as a backup for the pilot and if the pilot has an issue they they're able to take over and and continue getting the craft back and what would the uh how many cabin crew would be on a craft this size so we'd normally expect to have another crew on board as well right okay so right in the the back of the craft we're looking at the business end now the the two engines can you explain to us a little bit about the power and the performance of these yeah so what we're looking at are two man uh, thousand horsepower v12 turbo diesel engines which are which are providing the all the power for the craft Wow, but cer- certainly impressive. Um, have you have you piloted a craft with these before? You know, are they reliable? You know, what what what's their heritage in using something like that in this craft? So uh, these engines have now been proved down on the hover travel craft, um, which have been operating since 2017. Right. Uh, and those craft have clocked up about 15,000 hours each. They're, right. they're quite heavily used. Yeah. The engines have been one of the most reliable parts of the craft. They've, right. they've really, and they do get worked very hard down there. Yeah. They run a uh, a 10 minute crossing, and they start at six o'clock in the morning and finish at nine o'clock at night, and it's a five minute turnaround at each end. And on a busy summer's day, the craft will be constantly running backwards and forwards. Yeah. They, they really do work very hard. So high reliable high reliability levels are required. That's right. Uh, but at the same time, there's nothing in there which would be alien to a, a general yeah. uh, truck mechanic it, yeah. it's still a very simple system yeah okay yeah it it, it looks like an aeroplane engine but i understand it's probably a big truck engine and a combination between the two 
but very impressive. Um, in terms of maintenance, what sort of maintenance does the craft require on a, you know, a, what's its routine maintenance? So there's a full maintenance schedule which goes between daily, weekly, monthly, and then and then so many hundred hours and then up to right. thousand hours. Right. Daily inspections will, will be just checking fluid levels. Yeah. Weekly checks will they'll go around and check things like the tension of drive belts, uh, the skirt, the underside of the hull points tank spaces and then um, there's some other ones at various thousand hours where right. they change propellers and engines yeah. and things like that as well okay so ben thanks so much for uh for having us today where can we find out about griffin uh, and yourself and the museum online is there places we can find you yeah absolutely for the um for Griffin, you can have a look at uh, griffinhoverwork.com. There's also uh, Griffin's LinkedIn page and the Facebook page as well. And for the Hovercraft Museum, you can find them at hovercraft-museum.org and on the Facebook page. Right, and we'll put links to those in the show notes. That's it. We'd like to thank White Hearts as well as the extended family of supporters, including Mikoki at the Aviation Historian. As I've asked many times, we need your support too. Please leave us a review or feedback on your podcast player, Facebook page or through social media. Listen, we're falling down the rankings as we lose subscribers uh, due to this activity. Help us address this. We do this for you free of charge. This is all we ask in return. So thank you for those who have given us reviews. But if you're listening, please do take two minutes out of your time to leave us that review. You can find me at Nascot Hornet on Twitter and you can find Tim, Gareth and Ellie on the extended Twitter, Facebook and Instagram feeds. That's it with the arrival of the music. It's goodbye from Ben. Thank you. And it's goodbye from me, Peter Johnson. Remember, stay tuned to this frequency. That is, of course, aerospace radio station extended. Oh, and by the way, we do hovercrafts too. legal policy and use of our material can be found on our website please do ask before using anything you hear the programs produced with a creative commons license please leave us a review wherever you play your podcast it genuinely helps grow our program and broaden its reach you can also review the program and leave us feedback on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to email us, our email address is getinvolved at aviationextended.co.uk. And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you... The Royal Aeronautical Society is the world's only professional body dedicated to the entire aerospace community. Established in 1866 to further the art, science and engineering of aeronautics, the Society has remained at the forefront of developments in aerospace. Visit www.aerosociety.com Extend it!
is Xtp Media.